Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Deborah Levison, co-editor of the book Children and Youth as Subjects, Objects, Agents, Innovative Approaches to Research Across Space and Time, published by Paul Grave Macmillan, and I'm going to moderate this conversation. We're gathered in Minneapolis, Minnesota to talk about how this book came to be and how it can be useful to instructors and students of childhood. And with me are my two co-editors, who are also chapter authors, MJ Maines and Francis Vavris, along with three other chapter authors, Emily Bruce, Beth Lefebvre, and Elena Albaran, who is remote. We thank the Liberal Arts Technology and Innovation Services at the University of Minnesota for its technical support of this podcast recording. So first, let's detour back to 2013 when Fran and I first proposed a collaborative research circle on the topic of children and youth as subjects, objects, agents, lives and livelihoods um, in the Global South. And uh, we call it YASOA for short. We receive funding and other support from the University of Minnesota's Interdisciplinary Center for the Study of Global Change, and we're grateful for that. So Fran, can you talk about our intellectual journey and how this all came to be? Certainly, thank you, Deborah. As Deborah noted, we were the first co-facilitators, and then a few years later, MJ Maines joined us. Uh, quite a few of the original members of YASOA, both doctoral students and faculty, came from our units at the university in education and public affairs, but then others in the liberal arts, especially anthropology, history, sociology, uh, joined us as well. Our goal was to foster the formation of an interdisciplinary group of graduate students and faculty to explore the lives of children and youth in the global south. We began with members who were focused primarily on contemporary issues, but we expanded the focus temporally and geographically to include children and youth in the global north as well. More specifically, this interdisciplinary research circle or research collaborative examines the ways that children and youth are constructed as individual subjects in different theoretical frameworks and development discourses as objects of policy interventions in different domains, and as agents who act on the world and make meaning amidst conditions of social and economic marginalization. This is how we came up with the three main sections of the book, subjects, objects, and agents. Our YOSOA group has also done a number of other things in addition to work on this book. For instance, we've held writing workshops where members have uh, presented ongoing research and writing projects, and this process has helped to launch a number of publications by YASOA members. We've also met most summers to read and discuss books about children and youth in the Global North and in the Global South. So this is a bit uh, of information about our journey to date. 
And MJ, how about the book? How did that happen? Okay, so that came out of this research circle, and uh, like all the other dimensions that Fran has talked about, the book is also interdisciplinary and collaborative, and it, and it involves uh, the research in progress of work by faculty and graduate students, and all of us reading each other's work and thinking about it and crossing over those borders uh, that disciplines often mark out. We began discussing the idea for a book in fall of 2017 within the Yasua workshop, and we invited members of the workshop, but also um, out, outsiders from the University of Minnesota who had come and given great talks about their projects to us that we felt would be particularly interesting to have involved in the book. We invited them also to submit chapters. And this was these were meant to be brief chapters that discuss the substantive research they were doing, but also we did ask people to do a sort of self-reflection about methodology and their positionality within and across disciplines. We then had a series of brainstorming sessions in the fall, and these were followed by a two-day intensive writing hunker in the winter of 2017-2018, where local members actually sat down together and wrote together over a couple of days um, in the same room and with snacks. We then met through, uh, beginning in the spring of, of 2018 to actually workshop each chapter, to workshop each chapter and to give each other feedback on the chapters. The, then the re this was followed by comments from the editors and then a revision process through from summer of 2018 through the summer through the summer of 2020. We also worked with graduate student editors to make sure we followed the interesting format that Paul Gray Macmillan editors had suggested to us to make these, this book really accessible and useful for teaching, for example, including things like glossaries in each chapter and, and questions for discussion. And the book was then published uh, still in the midst of COVID in uh, the summer of 2021, and we had then a, finally had a real in-person book launch this year in the spring of 2022. So we're really happy to see the book out now. And um, we are really happy to have this occasion to talk to particularly this audience of historians of childhood and youth. And so the authors who are represented here today will mainly be talking about historical research. But again, I think what was interesting about the interdisciplinary collaboration is that the work that we, the historians in the group have been doing with sources were also so informed by the work of our colleagues in other disciplines and their their questions, their approaches, their interest also in child-centered and child-centered child research, child-involved research, and so we've learned a lot. Um, even though this group is primarily historians, we really um, want to emphasize here how much we've learned by going across disciplines. Well, and Elena Alberon was a speaker brought to Minnesota by the Yasoa Collaborative in 2016, and her presentation was so great, so engaging, that we immediately thought of her as a contributing author once we came up with the idea of producing a book. Elena is a historian of childhood, so we thought we had some idea about what she might write, but we were completely wrong, marvelously wrong. Now, Elena, can you talk about the very unusual documents you wrote about? Yes, thank you, Deborah. I, uh, in my normal life, I'm a historian of Latin American childhood and, in a particular, Mexican childhood, mid, early and mid 20th century Mexican childhood, and I had spent the better part of a decade and a half um, fixated on a quest for child-produced documents and concerned about my analysis of those child-produced documents, incomplete. Um, but compelling records of of the past 
documented by children at the moment that they were uh, the moment they were living through. So I also thought I knew what I was going to be contributing to this project. Um, but my participation with the Yasoa group coincided fortuitously with a more menial project of cleaning out my basement. And while I was cleaning out my basement, I came across a trove of my own child produced documents, my own childhood diaries. I sat there in the basement confronting a conundrum of whether or not I was going to keep these closed forever from public view <laughs> or as my, you know, inclination as a historian of childhood looking for stuff written by kids by a child's hand. Um, I kind of wondered what would happen if I cracked those volumes and looked at them through the lens of a historian and try to analyze my own past uh, with uh, of, of a more professional uh, outlook. What I decided to embark upon was an experiment, a laboratory of sorts in which I brought together my participation as a childhood historian with my role as an adult rememberer of my own childhood. And I thought by bringing these two components together, I might be able to complete the circle um, or to, as I posit in the chapter, um, sate the desire to know the unknowable about the child subject. Um, I was that child subject, so I thought this would be a pretty easy venture. But what turned out, what I tried to do was subject this diary to the similar processes that I would, uh, to recreate the conditions that I face when I first encounter a child produced document in the archive. And what uh, I turned up was some really surprising conclusions about my own childhood and about myself as a historian that I didn't think was possible in a story that I would have written about my own life. Okay, but you can't just stop there. That's such a <laughs> such a tease, Elena. Um, tell us how you did this. Go ahead. I, after looking at the diary myself and sort of going down memory lane a bit and being surprised about things that I had forgotten, I realized that that really wasn't going to be enough to uh, piece together a, a, a objective reconstruction of my childhood, um, and so I decided to to put the diary into the hands of a couple of other uh, focus groups, if you will. So first I submitted a few pages of the diary decontextualized uh, to some undergraduate history methods students who had a bit of experience with reading primary source documents. I didn't tell them I was the author and I didn't give them the whole thing. I gave them a few pages and I asked them to draw some conclusions about who the author was. Uh, and their circumstances. Um, they were able to reconstruct some, some accurate details about the child subject's life, geography, socioeconomic status, and so forth. But because of the incomplete nature of the documents that I had given them, uh, stripped of context, they also came to some very alarming conclusions based on miscues from the uh, from the pages, things that I knew were intended but that aren't clear from the writing of what what might have been intended, um, and it showed to me that they were able to draw some very different conclusions about the child author of that diary than 
I knew to be true. That immediately threw me into a panic about some of the conclusions I had been drawing about my own child subjects whose incomplete documents I've been encountering uh, in the in the archival record. Um, and so it gave me quite a bit of anxiety as a historian of childhood about my ability to draw sound <laughs> conclusions yeah. about the livelihoods of children of the past. So I submitted the document to yet another focus group, which is a colleague of mine, a fellow historian of childhood in Mexico City, Susana Sosensky, who also is an expert in child diaries. I didn't tell her I was the author. I said, I found this diary from 1986. What can you tell me about the author? She was able to come to some very sound and accurate conclusions like the other focus group, but she also made some observations about the materiality of the text, the form of writing that I had never crossed my mind that made me see myself as a child as a particularly historically sensibilized child, um, which allowed me to kind of draw the conclusion that child diarists and children who set down and document their livelihoods might be um, a particular type of kid. And so one of the other conclusions that her observations allowed me to make about this type of experiment is that child diarists like historians of childhood are perhaps a self-selecting population destined to find each other. So in the end, um, I, this practice of putting my own diary to scrutiny, which I hope to never replicate, but it was an experiment <laughs> nevertheless, um, allowed me to gain a greater appreciation for the need for us to engage in empathy in historical research um, and train ourselves to thoughtfully ask questions about subjects as if the authors were standing in the room. Well, I think we're all glad that you were that kind of child diarist. <laughs> um, now, some of the other chapters of our book were written by scholars who were members of the Yasoa Collaborative while they were doctoral students, and then have continued to be members while they're faculty in other institutions. And this is true for both Beth Lefebvre and Emily Bruce. Both had ambitions to include children's perspectives in their dissertations, and both faced challenges. And they're going to speak to those challenges and historical approaches and how they address them. And um, Emily, how about going first? So diaries, not unlike the one that Elena kept as a child, actually, were the holy grail of my archival quest during the dissertation project that became my first book, which is also the basis of the chapter that I contributed to the Yasoa volume. Uh, over the course of several years in archives all over Central Europe, I hunted for diaries written by young middle-class Germans during the Age of Revolutions. And throughout that quest, I managed to scrounge up a grand total of six to write about. So yes, as the SHCY audience knows very well, child-authored sources remain elusive and mediated, even with the extraordinary expansion of studies in recent years that have highlighted these texts, these kinds of artifacts. In particular, I began my dissertation hoping to find evidence of children's perspectives about their reading and their literacy education. I, I thought I would walk into an archive and open up a box full of diaries in which a child would tell me what she thought about her books. Um, I did use every scrap I could find along those lines in letters, school reports, textbook marginalia. 
Um, but of course, it was more elusive than expected. And I also came to recognize my interest in exploring children's writing for its own sake. I'm actually quite jealous of your six diaries. <laughs> um, so my project originated in my interest in understanding the mutually constitutive relationship between our ideas about childhood and schooling. My training is more in educational policy and history. And at the time, I was doing research in Uganda for another project and thought it would be a really interesting site for understanding this particular relationship. Uganda is relatively unique um, in its part of the British Empire. It was it did not have a settler colony and so when schools were developed beginning around the end of the 19 or into the 1800s, the turn of the century, they were developed for African children. And so British notions of schooling and the African child deeply infused the kinds of schools that were eventually developed there. What I found really interesting and also frustrating, um, especially given that schools are overwhelmingly populated by children, is that I had a really hard time finding anything produced by children themselves. There are a lot of critiques to be made of the colonial archive, but I think if it completely failed at anything, it is preserving African children's contributions. I, I did find, however, and talk about in my chapter, a handful of essays that were written by secondary school-aged girls and saved by a former teacher. She even says, um, she writes a letter to the archivist. She donates paperwork to a colonial records project. And she even says, I just included these random papers. Maybe they'll be interesting. Um, so she attaches no particular meaning to them. But there were maybe 10 at the most, uh, written about a variety of different topics. So I focus on um, two of them really heavily, and then one of them is also featured in the chapter. There's a letter written to a teacher by the Kabaka, or king of Uganda, when he was a child early in the colonial period. And then I also found a lot of photographs of children, so adult-mediated sources, but they were really meant to tell a particular story about childhood and schooling that I found really interesting in, in that research. Thank you, Beth. But once you do find child author documents, how do you understand them? Emily Bruce first. Well, my contribution to the Yasoa collection was really directly inspired by the methodological challenges that this collaborative posed. I don't think I would have started considering the role of the historian's emotions in the archive, which is the topic of my chapter, without having drawn inspiration from this multidisciplinary group. In recent years, historians of emotions have been producing fascinating work on the representation of children's feelings. But what I wanted to investigate is a somewhat different question. What part do, does the scholar's perspective play in trying to discern or to name or to interpret those feelings? As I encounter archival evidence of young people's interiority or attempts by adults to elicit particular emotions from children and youth, I'm also trying to understand my own affective response to archival documents. So I've asked questions like, how do the emotional frameworks and our memories as scholars guide our recognition of emotions like love, fear, hope, pride, resentment, attachment in historical sources? Could careful reflection on the historian's feeling provide evidence, allowing us to historicize the emotions expected of and about young people over time? And what dangers might 
researchers' emotional responses present in the work of historical interpretation. I thought I'd offer one brief example from the chapter to explain what I mean here. So in my original research, I came across a birthday note written by a 10-year-old German boy in 1813 named Heinrich Wilhelm Weise. In it, as a sort of birthday present to his father, he made a promise to be tidier in the coming year. He wrote, quote, I will be more diligent this year, and I will keep my books in order. If you look at my drawer, dear father, you will find all my books in the greatest order, but no crumbs. <laughs> Unquote. So here I noticed that in reading about Heinrich's fastidiousness, it made me feel a little sorry for him, maybe a little fondly amused. Uh, in fact, you can tell how I've set it up expecting a laugh. Uh, I suspected he might not have followed through on this promise, in fact. Mm -hmm. Does this potential difference between my reaction and what the child writer expected as a response from his father suggest a foreign emotional regime, one in which, in 1813, orderliness was the best way that a middle-class German child could inspire esteem and love from a parent? Yet again, perhaps Heinrich's father shared my amusement at his son's zeal. Uh, in the chapter, I pose questions like this and consider examples where this technique of secondary analysis reveals continuity in emotions across the centuries, differences between generations, as well as potentially misleading traps for my understanding of the emotions that resonate in child-authored sources. This is Beth again. I ended up finding it particularly helpful to distinguish between the different kinds of sources I found in terms of child-focused sources, so sources that were written about children and were, were intended to represent them in some way, and then child-authored sources where children took a more direct role in the creation of a particular document. So this, this chapter um, in the volume focuses on kind of two groups of documents organized in this way. Uh, again, a lot of the um, child focus sources I found were photographs. M many of these were taken by missionaries and sent back to missions agencies, family members. And then in later period, some of them were actually commissioned by particular schools or the colonial service. You start to see more sort of advertising for the colonial project in a coordinated way, um, demonstrating what was being done. And these child-focused sources often seemed to serve a dual purpose. Some of them highlighted the otherness of African and African children, underscoring their progress. I'm using air quotes here um, for those terms. That was the, the, you know kind of this progress toward evangelizing or civilizing them. And so you'll see somewhat of a progression in the photographs from earlier in the period where children are meant to represent sort of backwardness or a need for civilization and then later you'll see children wearing um, school clothing that would have felt very familiar to a British viewer. Um, I actually had the privilege of seeing girls in Uganda today wearing dresses that looked very similar to some of the ones that I saw in the archive and so there's this kind of sense of progress and familiarity that develops. 
I also drew a lot at, in looking at these child-focused sources on art historians and others who have spent a lot more time than I typically had thinking about textual discourses at play. And I started to think about how to read these photographs alongside letters and other sources that I had. I think I've read a criticism um, by an art historian of historians that we tend to just throw photos out there and not really analyze them. And I, I think that can be fair. And so it was interesting um, to read those. And I often read them against, um, when I had the opportunity, some of the different child-authored sources. One of my favorite examples that you'll see in the chapter is actually um, three generations of women who had all attended the same girls' school in Uganda, and they're gathered in front of um, the, the school's chapel, which would be familiar to anybody who knew the school. Um, and they're arranged, um, and you see the, the mothers wearing more traditional garb, um, which is actually not traditional, but it was developed during the colonial period, you find out later, um, with their daughters who are dressed in kind of more quote-unquote modern clothing. And it was really interesting then to read photographs like that against um, some of these essays where you see the ways that Ugandan schoolgirls are perhaps appropriating or resisting different aspects of the colonial um, educational regime, um, understanding ways in which they might be complicit in or appreciative of or frustrated with or feel alienation because of their educational experiences. And so I think together they helped tell a more nuanced story of childhood and schooling and kind of the entanglement of these different um, purposes and, and things that we have developed in ways that maybe words by themselves don't necessarily communicate or the archive, you know, when it preserves things like curriculum doesn't necessarily communicate. Oh, Beth, it's so interesting to hear you talk about images and how historians interpret them or don't interpret them. And, and I know that's something MJ really wrestled with in her chapter. So why don't you tell us about that? Okay, so like Beth, I was working with visual sources, but these were a very different kind. These were the, the images in graphic memoirs. And um, the examples I, I came to work with really are very broad. Not, they're, very, they're very focused uh, temporally. They were all authors and illustrators, illustrators who were born between 1945 and 1960, but they are from different regions of the world. And I do want to say this was really a result of my working with the Yasoa Collaborative, where I was really pushed to think beyond my kind of comfort zone in terms of uh, the global north and was, uh, was really um, pushed to think much more comparatively, which I think um, was very productive for me. I wanted to explore how the authors reconstructed and documented their own childhood experiences through images. They're all, again, professional artists, illustrators, and they were telling their own stories. So this is retrospective. These are not child-authored, obviously. They're sources that were written as adults and drawn, um, but they are trying to recreate what they remember seeing through their, through their eyes as children. And I focused on the ways in particular that they represented the spaces of childhood, where they grew up, the spaces of home and other spaces. And I'll just mention a few examples to draw some of the comparisons that I noticed in how this project of, of depicting and remembered spaces of childhood worked out. Uh, one example I discussed was the 2009 graphic memoir Stitches by David Small, who's from the US. And it tells his story of growing up in an emotionally cold atmosphere 
and also his bout with thyroid, thyroid cancer, which actually literally made him voiceless. So drawing was his salvation as a child, and it became his, his, his profession as an adult. But it's also very interesting how the idea of, of visualization and perspectivity are literally and, and metaphorically central to his memoir. And so um, he depicts, for example, the emotional coldness of his childhood by, by imagining and representing himself as a small child on the floor looking up at a looming and frightening adult, namely his mother. Um, and so you see this from the beginning, this kind of perspective of a subject, but a subject who's very powerless. And, and gradually he becomes more powerful um, as he draws himself, drawing his own way out of this dilemma. But the home is something that he wants to escape from. We get very different images of the home and the spaces of growing up in some of the other uh, world regional memoirs I looked at. Um, one of my favorites is by Lat, whose um, Malaysian memoir that was first uh, published by him in 1979 when he was only 28 and has been subsequently circulated and republished a lot. Um, he, uh, his strongest, I would say, emotional, visual recollection of childhood was very nostalgic. Uh, it's called Kampung uh, Poi, and it's really about growing up in a small village in, in Malaysia. And uh, he starts off in the interior of the family traditional home on stilts. But what's interesting um, is how per permeable the boundaries of his home are. Unlike um, Small, who seems trapped in, in the home he lives in, uh, Lat goes back and forth between his home and other spaces in the village. Uh, the memories are comic and sweet. In fact, he's often doing things that are sort of naughty. He's, he's running away from, he's supposed to be taking care of his younger siblings and he disappears off to join a gang of friends huh. fishing or something like that. So a lot of it is very nostalgic, very sweet, very comic. And um, there are adults around, but they're not playing a big role. They're kind of watchful, but basically he's on his own and with his buddies a lot of the time. And I think, again, the notion of nostalgia is very interesting here because um, the family home and the sort of whole life of the rural village is something at the point in time when he's an adult, which becomes sort of generally nostalgic. People are, it's becoming a very highly urban society, and so people are fondly remembering, wanting to remember a sort of different background. So here, for him, home is not a place to escape from, a trap, as it was for Small, but it's actually a space to go back to, which he actually does when he's an adult. But I also want to talk about a third example, um, which is like neither of the other two, um, even though it's, um, this is a home that's also permeable, but in a way that's actually frightening. And uh, again, there's no desire to return. Uh, this is the example of Mogorosi Mochumi, uh, his, his graphic memoir, The Initiation, the first volume of it, uh, was the first graphic memoir produced by a black South African comic, and it was, again, published fairly recently in 2016. But in contrast with both Lat and Small, um, he, he actually has a very specific political consciousness that infuses his story from the beginning. The political framework is never absent. Um, he, he lived with his grandmother in a homeland, like most black families in South Africa under apartheid. His family, his parents had to migrate back and forth so they couldn't actually live with him because to make their livelihood they had to be somewhere else. And in the opening scene we see this, the police bang on the door of his grandmother's house and drag him and his grandmother off to prison because they hadn't paid uh, their rent on time. And so again, under these circumstances, in some ways like for the other two authors, drawing became a kind of different imaginary kind of a life. Um, but. Uh, we, we see a very different political sense here, like Lat's 
Kampung, the townships were also permeable, but they were permeable by the authorities there. They were accessible to police. The parents came and went constantly, so there was not that kind of enclosed home, but, but the crossing boundaries between home and elsewhere were rather, rather were actually frightening. His father, for example, came home only to die at home because of illnesses he had contracted. So memories of growing up in a black township under apartheid as depicted by Mochumi um, could never be depoliticized. The, the home was also a place to be escaped from, but it wasn't the individual sort of psychological escape like we see in small. It was more of this po collective political escape. So it was just really interesting to think about these three people who all grew up around the same time but in different parts of the world, became professional artists and drew their lives and their memories of childhood, focusing on the space, but with such different stories to tell. And it's fun to see the actual images in the chapter since MJ got permission to reproduce them. That really makes a big difference also. It was, was very helpful. Well, I'm going to ask if anybody here wants to ask somebody else a, a question. We can have a conversation for a few minutes. Yeah, jump in, Emily. This is Emily. I have a question for MJ. Um, we've been speaking about the trajectory of how you, and of course uh, in Beth's case as well, came to read new kinds of sources, that is visual ones. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about these three examples that are so essential to the chapter in the Yasuo volume, but I also happen to know that you now have taught a course mm -hmm. on graphic memoir and about teaching history through comics. So I thought maybe you could take a minute, uh, minute to talk about how some of what you've learned through the project with Yasoa has uh, shaped your teaching. Yeah, actually that's the, that's the most recent phase of it, so it's kind of new, but I really did move um, from thinking about these sources as something that historians should take seriously. I think this echoes very much what Beth was saying. And I also want to go back to something that Elena said too, because I was really struck by your saying how when you did that second project with your uh, the other historian, how it called attention to the materiality, to the nature of the source, and to the intentionality of you as a child, which you maybe didn't recognize, but it's something that your colleague did right away. And I always think about that question. And so I think um, this question of, and I think you, you brought it up too in a way, Emily, too, this sort of what is intended by the person who produces the source, whether they're a child producing their own source or, or an adult um, producing a retrospective source or an objective source. There, there are all these questions that I think keep echoing, but specifically to your question, I've just been really struck by the way students respond to the images visually, especially the, the, the ones I was dealing with, the comics, but again, relating to points that have been made the emotional nature of the event that is being depicted comes across so strongly. And I think um, we found, and this is mainly coming out of student papers that were written in the context of their responses to the graphics. Uh, for example, one that was a memoir of the experience of the boat people, sort of the people who were exiled um, after and during and after the Vietnam War ended up in the US, and there's one very good um, uh, graphic memoir. Uh, they they resonated right away with the experiences that were described in the camps. They I had them some of them drew their own responses in one case, and and they really emphasized that emotional quality, how they felt in the moment. And again, it can be a little deceptive because they can draw you in in ways that can be misleading, right? Like other sources. But what my I was just so struck by how the students felt they were experiencing something they couldn't experience with words alone. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else? 
Yeah, Elena. Yeah, this is Elena. Um, I think going through this process of working together across disciplines, geographies, and temporalities uh, has been really uh, illuminating in terms of the, the project of childhood studies as an interdisciplinary field. And in some ways, the projects of, that we've learned about and that I've conducted myself have confirmed my sense that uh, a child is like any historical subject from the vantage point of a, of a historian. A child works like any other historical subject. Um, but I also want to ask all of you to think about the ways that children might be a special, unique, or distinct group as a subject, object, or agent. What are some of the things that cohere our projects that have childhood as a specificity? Um, I wonder if any of you have started to think about this in comparative work. That's an interesting question, Elena, and perhaps I'll jump in. This is Fran, and I'm in the field of education, specifically comparative education. I think we tend to think of children as subjects in the making. Schooling is one of the most important social institutions for the shaping of young minds and, and young bodies and also producing certain kinds of, of governing systems for, for children to be productive citizens in the future. And I think the work with the Yasoa Collective has helped me to think about this not as a, a project of the 20th century, but one that goes back far you know far into the, the the past and one that is likely to continue into the future schooling education are so central to what we do between generations and so i think that looking comparatively temporally uh, and um, geographically can bring about a great number of benefits for students of ours who are academics and also students of ours who are practitioners, future teachers and, and future teacher educators also benefit from this comparative approach. I, I'll also jump in here. This is Beth. I think um, this work has been really interesting and affirming. I actually used to be a classroom teacher. I taught first and second grade before returning to graduate school. And so in many ways, I think this collaborative confirmed something that I observed many times in the classroom, which is just that kids can come to completely different conclusions about the same set of things, um, sometimes perfectly logical and also wrong conclusions mm -hmm. about the same sets of things. And I think that there's a value to consider really any discipline, you know, I can only imagine for others, but certainly in education, it, it should concern us that schooling primarily concerns children. They're the primary people who participate, and yet, when we develop policy, when we develop curriculum, when we make decisions, when we think about the history of education, we often don't actually focus on them or include their perspectives or or adapt and change based on, on what they might have to say about something. And so I think that attention to the, the, the archive, um, one where we're thoughtful and critical, as, as your work, Elena and Emily, reminds us of really well, um, but but that it's important and that, that, that their voices matter as we think about how we operate, the kinds of decisions that we make, um, particularly when they involve children. Well, that is a really important note to finish on, and I, I'd just like to take our remaining time to talk about how 
uh, we can use this book as a teaching tool. And, and let me just start by mentioning that we worked hard to make sure that each chapter is very readable for interdisciplinary audiences. And, and you've heard about how we've done that. So I'm just going to um, hand this over to Fran Vavris to see what ideas she has. Thank you. We've heard um, from four of the historians who contribute to the book, and in this, uh, this, this discussion today, you can get a sense of the different materials, sources, methods, and analytical approaches that are evident in the book. Uh, and so um, I think the book, though, lends itself to other kinds of methods courses as well in history and beyond. I would say that it's going to be a useful text for people who are teaching introductory methods courses because we want our students to understand how different disciplines rely on particular methods and why that might be the case. Because all of the chapters share the goal of advancing understanding of the lives of children and youth, the use of different methods to address specific questions should help students see the range of approaches that one can use in the humanities and social sciences. And then finally, in advanced methods classes in history or other disciplines, students and faculty may want to hone in on a subset of the chapters, such as those that use life history or archival research, but recommend chapters that um, have different approaches to research to serve as a, a sort of comparison. Thanks, Fran. Um, MJ? Yes, um, what I would like to bring to this too is I, uh, several of us had the pleasure of participating in a session at the fall 20. 21 social science history meeting and there was a book session devoted to this book and it was really interesting to us how many of the people who talked there talked about how they were going to teach the book and we were really excited by that response and I can't go into a lot of detail here um, and so I won't talk about everyone but I guess I'll just focus in on them. There was one participant, uh, Susan Miller, who's in childhood studies at Rutgers University and she focused her entire set of comments on how she would teach the book. I'll just mention things that will now sound sort of familiar to you, but she was particularly interested, and she was thinking about an undergrad class on youth activism, but also, of course, on methods, um, again. And uh, as she put it, she loves it um, when students can, quote unquote, hear us thinking, right? And so she liked the way the book was so attentive to self-reflexive uh, approaches to methodology and how we know what we know. And she thought that that was built into every chapter. And uh, she mentioned in particular a number of chapters that uh, did things that she thought the students would find helpful. Um, Emily's chapter, uh, because she was interrogating her own feelings, as we've said, an author who's not with us today, Kelly Condit Tresta, who wrote, wrote on, on the problem of as an adoptee, international adoptee, trying to find her own records and being closed off from the archives. So this whole question of the control of archives and um, access to and being cut off from archives. And um, I also saw actually that students were really, really interested in that when I taught this in my own class last semester. And I think there was just a lot of thought that, um, that these chapters pay attention to how you do, how you, how you acquire knowledge, how you make discoveries, and then how you think about them critically. And so they were very appreciative of that. This is Elena Albron. Um, I, have, I have taught the introduction to get students to think about different ways 
that children resonate in the study of history in particular it's really helpful for framing the relationships between structures and agents and how any historical subject fits into that matrix um, and then to look particularly at the types of institutions that tend to mediate children's lives and voices um, so the introduction is really helpful for getting students to become historically minded in that. Um, I've also used Jessica Taft's chapter on the ethics of child of critiquing child activism. She works on uh, child labor organizers in Peru, children that are child labor organizers in Peru um, in the contemporary context. I've used her chapter in my Latin American studies capstone classes to talk about the controversial topic of rights-based discourse and its thorny application to populations in the global south and also the ways that researchers find themselves as kind of interlocutors with children who are agents of their own destinies and so i think that that chapter is particularly useful for people working on te contemporary issues of child labor this is beth lefebvre i actually have a confession i have not used the book yet sorry um i do hope to soon one of the things i really appreciate about this volume and think is helpful is its readability and candor as authors, we were all asked to bring a transparency to this writing um, that's usually absent from more scholarly work. And so I think in this way, you'll see a lot more thinking made visible in this volume. Um, you'll see how people retooled their projects, which is really great, really helpful um, as you think about kind of your own research. And this is Emily Bruce. I teach at an undergraduate-only liberal arts college, and I find this an invaluable resource for several courses related to the history of childhood, uh, echoing Beth and uh, MJ's uh, relaying of Susan Miller's comments. I think that candor, that transparency, and, and even vulnerability about methods is the particular gift of the book, uh, but also the creativity about the methodological messiness involved in studying youth, youth. I think that's something that we historians can make especially good use of in teaching. Well, thank you all. And as we wrap up, I want to uh, thank Elena Alboran, Emily Bruce, Beth Lefebvre, MJ Maines, and Fran Vavris for joining me, Deborah Levison. Uh, you can find children and youth as subjects, objects, agents, innovative approaches to research across space and time, either as single chapters or the entire book at Palgrave Macmillan's website or wherever you buy your books. And uh, of course, please encourage your library to order it as an ebook. Yes. Thanks to all. Thank, thank, thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Deborah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. S-H-C-Y dot org.